this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today earlier this month the national commission for women said that it had seen a 30% rise in complaints of crimes against women in 2021 compared to 2020 Nearly 31,000 complaints of crimes against women were received by the commission for last year, the highest number since 2014. Of these, over 6,000 were related to domestic violence and over 4,000 were to do with dowry harassment. In 2020 also, the commission had received a record high number of complaints, one quarter of them related to domestic violence. In just April and May of 2020 that year, during the nationwide lockdown, 47.2% of the cases the commission received were to do with domestic violence by comparison barely 21% of cases received between january and march were to do with this domestic violence has sometimes been referred to as the shadow pandemic as the world faced an unprecedented crisis in the form of covid-19 and lockdowns became the norm in several countries Not only did women find themselves locked in with their abusers at home, they also lost access to support services outside. The economic distress faced by millions exacerbated this problem. In India, organizations working with women have reported a huge spike in cases. Men and women lost their jobs. Many members of a, of a single family were forced to stay together often in small cramped quarters. and not only did women have more household work than usual they also had little access to the outside and their support systems dwindled at the same time many girls and young women who would ordinarily have been in school and college have been confined to their homes potentially increasing their vulnerability to violence and also to the threat of cyber crimes since most of their lessons were held online did we have any mechanisms in place to help support survivors of violence through the pandemic What legal and social structures do we need to have? What happens when fewer women use public places and will this have an effect on women's safety in the future? And how well has the Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act 2005 been implemented? To speak to us about this and more, we have with us today Swarna Rajagopalan, founder of Pragnya, a non-profit that works in the area of gender equality. Good afternoon Swarna and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you for having me Subeda. Swarna during the last 2 years of the pandemic experts have warned of and organizations have across the country have said that the lockdowns have led to a huge rise in cases of domestic violence. Earlier this month the National Commission for Women said that there was a 30% increase in rise of com- in complaints of crimes against women in 2021 compared to 2020. and even in 2020 they saw a very steep increase in the number of crimes committed against women during the lockdown could you talk to us a little bit about this i want to start by saying that the increase in incidents of domestic violence and more generally other forms of violence against women or gender based violence would have come as a surprise only to people not already sensitized to these issues and unfortunately that has included most governments around the world and uh, anybody who does research in this area or who provides services or is an activist or an advocacy ad- activist in these issues knows that in any time of crisis whether it's a pandemic or a disaster or a conflict or displacement one of the first consequences is an increase in gender based violence we know about domestic violence because it 
is possible for people to complain. But there are many other kinds. And across the board, we've talked to our partners in the social sector. We also hear about, uh, you know, an increase in child sexual abuse, elder abuse, child trafficking. Forced and child marriage have become common across the board. So I just wanted to start by saying that and putting this in a broader context where any crisis seems to trigger an increase in violence against vulnerable sections, notably gender minorities and women. So this is something to keep in mind. And one of the most, there are many things the pandemic has revealed about our failures as um, humanity. And one of them is actually that in all of these years, very few countries and certainly not ours, we haven't really provided or created enough support services that would allow individuals should become resilient in these situations and to be safe. Having said that, you also mentioned um, the lack of access to, I think that this, you know, the one reason why domestic violence became more common, seems more poignant, is that women were locked in with their abusers. This meant, if you think of the average size of an Indian home, People are often several people in a room at any given time. Where do you phone from? You can't go out because there's a lockdown. Nobody can reach you because your abuser is in the same room. For people who were working in service provision, getting to shelters, getting to their workplace was also an issue. So there were so many different barriers to help seeking. Despite that, I want to say that we hear from a lot of our partners that even if their original mandate was livelihoods or to organize self-help groups or to provide uh, last mile health care, many, many, many organizations on the ground have in fact ended up being first responders to incidents of violence with varying degrees of competence and sensitization, but you know, just responding to the need that showed up in front of them. Swana, like you said, in a lot of cases, women were locked in with the abusers for long stretches of time in 2020 and 2021 during the lockdowns. Do we need more mechanisms in place legally and socially in order to be able to handle a crisis of this proportion? For instance, countries abroad, some countries abroad set up systems where women could say, for instance, go to a pharmacy and use a code word to show that they were being abused and then <clears throat> they could then access services through that. Uh, do we need to set up mechanisms in place such as these? We do need to set up better mechanisms. We have a host of laws in place to address a, most varieties of violence. There are What is missing, I would say to start with, our recognition as victims or survivors and in society, in the community, that people need to use the laws, that they are in a situation that a certain law addresses. For example, we have the Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act. But does a woman experiencing domestic violence recognize it as such? Does she think this is something that is wrong and that must be addressed? Or does she think this is a part of adult life as a woman, as a married woman? That's one area where we still need to change a great deal. And on the other side, we also need a better capacity to help victims. And I, you know, we tend to fixate when we talk about these issues, we fixate on the police and the courts. And those are very important. And of course, there are shortcomings in performance, as I'm sure they would recognize. But the space, the other space that is sort of inadequate is 
support services. The support services that are available on the government side, how good are they? How well regulated are they? How forward thinking are they? Perhaps most important, how safe are they for women to use? And how much can civil society fill that gap? We worry. Pragna does a helpline listing every year. We update it, we give it out. But we worry constantly about the pressure on those five, six organizations whose numbers we give out. If one in three women experience violence and one in three women were to show up at these five shelters, they would not have the capacity to help them. So I worry about improving, deepening, expanding that capacity as well and doing so in a way that doesn't uh, over-regulate them and subject them to the same issues that other government-regulated institutions have. If, as you told us, very few women who experience violence seek help, the number is supposed to be about 14% of women in India who have experienced violence actually go out and seek help. And as you told us, some of the institutions, such as the police and the courts, could do with reform when it comes to this. What are the first things that could be set up in order for women to access and to have access to, that they could go to, in order to seek help from violence at home? I think that our sensitizations could be much more broader based. There are a host of organizations and institutions that women ordinarily have access to. So going out to buy vegetables, maybe there is a cooperative that is selling them. I think across the board, if we could sensitize ourselves as society to watching for signs of abuse, opening ourselves to being helpful bystanders, knowing things that we can tell people. I mean, you can't force a person to leave an abusive situation, but you can tell them that you are aware of it. You can let them know that uh, they can seek help. You can keep information at hand about help. If you are selling products used by women in your store, can you make sure that you also have a listing of helplines that women can access? We reach out to beauty parlors, we reach out to nurses because often they are the first people to come across signs of abuse. If each of us in our roles in each other's lives would just be a little more sensitive and ourselves, if we ourselves could be better informed so that we can give them information or give each other information. I mean, none of us is separate from any of these uh, realities, right? I think that that would begin to make a change because, you know, it's also important that we, in a sense, I don't, the word is not validate, but if someone says, look, I'm experiencing this and I don't know whether this is how it is or this is how it should be, we should be able to say, no, it shouldn't be like this and we ourselves should have that awareness. So I'm not sure that was a clear response, but. I think the more I do this work, Zuveda, the more I come back to to that level of engagement rather than looking at very exterior external structures. The first people that women turn to are really family, uh, neighbors, maybe the church, maybe self-help group they know. And those are the places where that awareness needs to reach. I was going to go back to something you had said earlier when you said that in times of crisis, in times of conflict, one of the first things that happens is that gender-based violence 
rises sharply. The pandemic has been unprecedented across the globe, but especially in India, because of the not just because of the absolute loss in lives that it has caused, but also because of the economic distress that most Indians have faced. Could these be factors as well that add themselves to gender-based violence at home? Absolutely. Actually, we did a we did two things last year at Pragnya. We in June, right now, it seems like the early stages of this long crisis we're living through. But in June 2020, we did a survey and asked people how their experience of being locked down was. And it was not a very large survey, but people seemed to be much more positive at that point about being home in those responses. In December, we convened consultation of our partners across Tamil Nadu, and we also asked them to fill out a survey then. And what emerged, that was specifically about domestic violence during the lockdown. What emerged in that consultation was actually debt, that people were borrowing money, whether it was was from banks or from other people or from self-help groups. They were unable to return the money. The growing debt in the family, apart from other you know, other things like hunger or sickness that you can't take care of was actually leading to leading to tension and friction, which then led to abuse. So absolutely, I think distress is part of it. The inability to do anything about a situation that is deeply frustrating to everyone, the inability to leave that situation and seek a solution, all of those. And if I could add one more element in that is also the loss of support, because a lockdown also means that your sister-in-law cannot drop by for a visit and see the conditions in your home. Nobody was visiting anyone. No one had family support. You know, we were all so isolated. So there was nobody to ask how you were because everyone was locked down. So that, that the loss of support is another factor in any crisis situation, that breakdown of community. Swana, you were telling us again a little earlier about how, and statistics bear this out, that a lot of women, married women in India, seem to consider uh, violence uh, or abuse as part and parcel of married life. You said that this, at first, needs changing and needs changing considerably. What, in your opinion, could be done to, at least to make the younger generation, one generation down, see violence for what it is? I can only think of more talking like this, more writing, more teaching, also giving them the confidence to talk back in a way. In many of our families, and I would go so far as to say that in all of our families, there is always somebody who is constantly gaslighting or abusive or putting someone down. It doesn't always have to be physical violence that you may or may not witness. But to be able to say that joke is not funny, that comment is not kind. This, well, maybe so-and-so's sambar is not good, but wow, her rasam is the best. To be able to stand up for each other, to have that confidence, to speak up for what is correct. I think that, you know, young people in a family end up changing consumption patterns. They end up changing how people dress. They end up shifting how parents think about what is a good career, bad career, by making their own choices. So if they can also take on a little bit of the responsibility for changing the way families deal with abuse, the silences, why don't we talk about this? I think that that is a beginning. And I know it's a very big deal to burden young people with changing older people who are quite typically reluctant to change at all. But 
I can't think of a more persistent force than a blunt and self-righteous young person in any group. So I think that that's a good place to change. And that means we should be talking about issues much more openly in public settings like, well, the media, but also on our social platform. I see that change, Zubeda. It's not that it isn't happening. There are many things we now talk about in the public domain that maybe 30, 40 years ago I wouldn't have seen. And that's a good thing. But I, I see that this is one place to change. And I hesitate to say we need to do more sensitization and awareness simply because it sounds so self-serving to say it on this platform, given that Pragnya does this work. But I do think that that's the way to go. It's the long haul. It's the slow work. But it's the surest way that I can think of to make this shift. Just push back. Swana, you were talking about young people. With almost two years of schools and colleges having remained shut, a lot of teenage girls and young women who would otherwise be out of the house every day to go and study have been confined to their homes, with mostly with online classes. Do you think this has posed an increased risk to them also of facing violence at home? I think so. I mean, we know that sexual abuse within the home has gone up. I mean, you know, there are the people when, who we speak with talk about abuse by grandparents, for example, or uncles or cousins. This is not to say that it's happening in every home, but that is one thing. But also the access to... This time we did a, did a conversation about child marriage. One of the things that came up was that young people have access to technologies that their parents barely understand. And they are interacting with and encountering new ideas and new ways. And this is also making them vulnerable to different kinds of cyberbullying, but also, you know, people seeking to court them, for want of a better term, over the internet, uh, you know, be friends with me, come meet me, that sort of thing. So I think, yes, they are more vulnerable. They also, I think we will also see in the long term, Two other consequences. One is that in their formative years, they wouldn't have had the experience of interacting with people. You know, 14, 15, 16, 17, these are the ages at which your circle grows quite a bit, you know, from the 9th to the 10th to the 11th to the 12th to first year college or your first year at work. Your circle is growing. I don't want to say exponentially because I think that's the wrong word, but considerably from year to year. And if you don't have the experience of that, of learning how to interact with more and more diverse people, that's also going to make an impact on who you are at 40 or 45. And the other thing is confidence. I have been worrying. It's not just that the lockdowns have made women more vulnerable to domestic violence, which was the starting point of our conversation, but also as more and more more women stay indoors and get used to it, and get used to work from home, and so on. What is this going to mean for the public sphere, both in terms of access to education and livelihoods on the one hand, and also political activism, public sphere activism? Are we going to see, you know, we went from Shaheen Bagh, where all of these Shaheen Baghs all over India, so many women out there, and into this lockdown. And at the end of the lockdown, will women flood protest spaces in the same way. This is also a question that matters to me because this is another sphere of violence, right? Against women who speak out, women who step into the public sphere with strong opinions. So I think it's it's just part of a picture 
that we are trying to understand still. Do you believe that the fewer women there are in the public sphere, the less safe public spaces and spheres become for them? Yes, I do believe that. I think it's one of those uh, unfortunate consequences. Now, when I step out of my building, I one of the first people I pass by is a woman entrepreneur who owns two ironing carts. Now, if she is not there and she employs people, if all of them are not on that street, that street is less safe for me. Because the other people who come and go are people who sell coconut water. There is a tailor who occasionally comes and sits, but he isn't the permanent fixture. So where are the eyes on my street? And if I were a teenager going to school and having to catch a bus at the end of my street, that would really matter to me. So absolutely, I think having more women working, walking, hanging out in the public sphere makes it possible for even more women to do that. There's an element of confidence that we give each other that that we can count on. So I think that that will make a difference. And so many of them have had to fold up completely because the first few months of lockdown when people were not eating out from, you know, the idli kade or giving clothes for ironing or getting things repaired would have really hit their enterprises. So I think those are incalculable losses that we will have to contend with. One last question, Swarna. We spoke a little bit about the Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act 2005. It's been about 15 years now since India brought in this law, which was considered a huge deal when it came in because it because it moved because it moved things completely from the purview of the courts and brought in protection officers who are supposed to be appointed in every district by state governments in a, in order to help women in crisis in your experience how how has india how has india dealt with the act has it has it helped has it not had much of an effect at all i think the the act does help but i believe from the from what i have read and what i have heard that in general People prefer lawyers, for example, prefer not to use this act and are more comfortable with the, with the old IPC provisions. I know that protection officers are not always in place in every district. When they are, they are not very well trained. They are not very well resourced. So, for example, we've heard that if, if someone is based in a district headquarters and she has to go out and investigate a case in a village, she does so at her own expense. So it's small things like that. And I think it's a pattern that we set up structures, but we don't flesh them out. We don't resource them adequately. And we don't resource them in anticipation of, we don't resource them conservatively in the sense of expecting that in a district of 2 million, there will be 200,000 cases in a year or whatever. I'm making up these numbers. We assume that there will be five cases. Now, you can't stretch those resources. And it's also human resources, right? Someone has to go with this person. So it's a, it's a host of, uh, it's a pattern. I mean, even with the workplace sexual harassment laws, we have a requirement for a local committee. We have a requirement for reporting. There is no clarity on where the committees are, who to report to. People just make this stuff up and say, well, you can do it this way or do it that way. So this is a this is something where I would place the onus on government because these are the structures that the government was bound to set up. There is so much that lawyers can do. There is so much that support service providers can do. There is so much that civil society can do in terms of creating awareness. But then when you go to the point where it's supposed to be an official structure and that structure is 
inadequate, under-resourced, or relegated to the margins, or given five different kinds of responsibilities and expected to perform them all full-time, then you are setting up what might have been a good system on paper. You're setting it up for failure. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Swarna. Thank you for having me. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.